May I add my, uh, my welcome to those that have already been offered. I personally do not believe that those who may be worshiping in the most glorious cathedral in all of the world are worshiping in a finer place or offering more genuine praise and worship to the Lord our God this day. I appreciate my brother's prayers this morning. I truly acknowledge the, the richness, the bounty, the awesomeness of God's blessings toward Sovereign Grace Church in, in our, our humbleness. His majesty is magnified. I like this place. Uh, I don't like this stage. <laughs> I would refuse to stand up here. I would refuse to elevate Bill Eller uh, above uh, the congregation. And I will only do so, I will only stand here elevated before you. As you understand that it's not Bill Eller that's elevated, but rather it is the word of God that we, we symbolize by the elevation of this pulpit and the preaching of his word. If you will agree with me in that, would you say amen? Amen. Thank you. You, uh, you make it uh, so much more uh, convenient uh, to, uh, to now preach the word of God. We'll look to Acts chapter 4 this morning. We'll read a, a text of the occasion when two men, two fellows named Peter and John, some 2,000 odd years ago, living in Jerusalem in Israel, they were headed into the temple in Jerusalem, and there they encountered a lame man laying at the entrance to the temple begging that people might give him some money. That was that was his profession. That's what he had always done. He was a, a regular, uh, regular sight there at the entrance to the temple. And as Peter and John come along, he, he likewise uh, asked them that they might uh, give him some money as well. The man Peter responds to this lame beggar saying, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Rise up and walk. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. I would say this is quite a spectacle. And in, fi in fact, I have another sermon that I'll preach someday that uh, focuses on the idea of this lame beggar man entering the temple, walking and leaping, and praising God, but uh, that's a sermon better preached in a, a charismatic church uh, for, for the opportunity and the occasion. But certainly we acknowledge the, the joy that is expressed in this man, and what happens as a result of his, 
his leaping and praising God as they enter the temple is that it draws a crowd as well it might. And as the, the crowd gathers around to see what all the carrying on's all about, this man Peter begins telling the crowd that it was by faith in Jesus of Nazareth that this man who was lame all his life has been healed. Peter says that this demonstration of God's miraculous power by the name of Jesus is that which has been accomplished through faith in that name. So they're, they're talking about Jesus. They speak repeatedly that it was Jesus who accomplished this. And this, this focus on Jesus, this emphasis on faith in Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, just does not set well with the religious elite in that day, the religious elite who ran the temple, the religious elite who were in charge of religion in that day. I've often said that things have not changed much over the last 2,000 years. And you may recognize that this is one of the things that has not changed much over 2,000 years. It is still true that the religious elite, the powerful, those who know everything, are not real pleased with focusing in on faith in that name of Jesus Christ as the basis for salvation. But these religious elite, these power brokers there in Jerusalem, they bring John and Peter before their council, and they demand of them, they require of them, they explain themselves. And so it is that we encounter in Acts chapter 4, beginning at verse 8, Peter's response to this demand for an explanation of what has happened. You may follow along in your scripture, or it will be on the blackboard. Screen. It's not on the screen. All right. All right, all those who are surprised with technical difficulties this morning, you can, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, well, I'll read to you, uh, and you can follow along as you might have that. So we begin in Acts chapter 4, verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 
It is this last verse that I wish to specifically call your attention. For in this verse, we find what is the most foundational tenet of the Christian religion. Specifically, we find here that which is most specifically the understanding of anthropology, that is the, the condition of man, the state of humanity with relationship to God. This, this doctrine, this tenet, this truth is not a complicated one. It is in fact very plain and easily understood. I want to set this before you in a manner that you might be able to carry with you. That is to speak of the problem, the provision, and the precision. So then we start at the ending with the problem. We must be saved. So as always, I want to be sure that we define our terms that we're talking about the same thing. So what does it mean to be saved? Well, it would seem rather obvious, but let's be sure that we understand what the Bible is saying to us with regard to being saved. For it is this idea, as we've sang this morning, that one must be rescued from danger. One must be rescued from mortal danger. One must be saved from his life in peril, deadly peril. This is a condition from which if one is not relieved, death will ensue. God's word speaks to all humanity from Acts chapter 4. We must be saved. What then, as we understand the meaning, the definition of saved, what then is the peril from which Scripture tells us we must be saved? We need to begin, first of all, with how we came to be in deadly peril, how we came to be in a condition, a situation from which we must be saved. So let us understand that we were created by God. This is first and foremost the, uh, the tenet that we have to, to work from, that we are created by God. Then we were created by God for life. We were created to live. It was God's intent that the race of man should live in communion with Him for all eternity. That's why God created us to live in communion with God. But to do so, to live in communion and live with, in community with God, it must be a holy life, a life that is set apart, a life that is separated unto God. It is a life that is essentially lived in obedience and in submission to the Creator, to God. That is the essential standard by which we were created to live. And we, mankind, humanity, 
you and I, we have failed to live up to that standard established by our Creator, that standard which would sustain the life for which He created us. We fall short. We fall short of that measure. As a race, the race of mankind, we have from our ancestors in the Garden of Eden until now, we have all fallen short of God's expectations. We think we, think we have no need of God. We think we are in control of ourselves and our environment without God. One of our favorite phrases begins so many sentences, I will. I will. And thus, we neither submit nor obey our Creator, our God. This dismissing of God an advancement of self is what in the Bible is called sin. And God in His holiness, and by the way, in His love, but that's for another day, God in His holiness has not, does not, and will not ignore nor tolerate sin in his creation. God has said through his apostle, we have in Romans chapter 1, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. But because of your hard, then in verse 5 of chapter 2, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Failing in both submission and obedience, we are subjects of God's wrath. Subject of God's just wrath. God's wrath is just, for it is His wrath that we deserve in our disobedience and our failure to submit to our Creator. It is His wrath that we have earned for ourselves by our sin. He gave us life, and we turned away from Him to be our own God. 
So we find ourselves in an intolerable situation. We want to run our own lives, but that path leads us directly into the wrath of God. And no matter what that may mean specifically, we know certainly it ain't good. So we think to ourselves, maybe I should clean up my act. Maybe I should try harder to do what's right. See if I can find out what it is God wants and really try to do better. But that approach fails every time. Every time it's tried, it falls short. Many have tried, and all have failed. There is, if nothing else, there's still that wrath of God that was stored up by your former sins. You've already been made aware of the problem of coming up short on God's expectations. You don't want to make the same mistake in failing to appreciate the wrath of God against sin. Jesus said, as we have recorded in Mark chapter 9, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where, there, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And speaking of the final judgment, the Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 20, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. We are limited by language. Uh, perhaps we often think that, that language is the path of, of freedom and understanding. and In many ways it is, but in our relationship with God, we are limited by language. And here is the, the Bible speaks to us of the lake of fire as we, as we image that in our minds, as we consider what that would be like, we understand that this is an effort on the part of God's Word to put into human terms an understanding of the experience of God's wrath on unrepentant sinners. It should be sufficient said that the wrath of God is some, not something we want to experience. And it is this wrath, this eternal condemnation to the lake of fire, this is that mortal danger. This is that deadly peril from which we must be saved. In this we are desperate. For we would certainly quickly acknowledge that it is only by God's mercy 
that he has not visited his wrath upon us already. We would have to accept that we, we sit here today, we stand here today, we, we live and breathe today because God has allowed it. A merciful God who is just in his wrath towards our disobedience and failure to submit to him. It is certainly within the providence of God to withdraw his merciful hand at any moment that you would instantaneously step off into eternity to the reward which awaits you, whether that be eternal life or wrath and fury. You are no doubt familiar with Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, wherein he said, You hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it and ready every moment to singe it and burn it asunder. And you have no interest in any mediator and nothing to lay hold of to save yourself, nothing to keep off the flames of wrath, nothing of your own, nothing that you have ever done, nothing that you can do to induce God to spare you one moment. Such is our anthropology. Such is the condition of mankind. Now if you choose, if you choose not to believe these things, if you choose to ignore what God has said, If you will not believe that God is your creator, if you do not believe that God will visit his wrath upon unrepentant sinners, if you do not believe that you are a sinner, if you do not believe that you are the object of God's wrath, your unbelief makes the fire no less hot. But if anything is a billows on the flames of God's wrath. The problem. We must be saved. But there is a provision. Who can save us? While, while we were scheming and conniving on how we might go about running our own life while we have assured ourselves that we really have no need of God or even perhaps we had convinced ourselves that we're actually a good person. I think perhaps in, in our world, in our society, that may be the the more usual, the more typical sin, I'm not really a bad person. I'm actually a good person. I'm not a sinner, like fill in the blank. 
perhaps arriving at the conclusion that, that I'm actually such a good person and I do so much good, so many good things, God would never condemn me. God has prepared for you a way. And that way, that provision is in Jesus Christ. As our verse said this morning, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. As noted earlier, we were created to live in communion with God, our Creator. But we left Him to be our own gods. Consider that, and consider what an offense that must be to God. And certainly his wrath burns hot against that offense. But while we turned our backs on him, we turned away from him, we failed to live according to the expectations, his standard, his measure of life, of holiness, righteousness, in communion with him, God, and this is one of our favorite phrases, but God. One of the most marvelous, wonderful statements in all of Scripture, but God. God still fulfills His intent in creation. God still will accomplish that for which He created humanity, He created mankind, that He would have a people who would walk with Him, and He would be their God, and they would be His people. And to fulfill God's purpose in creation, He sent His Son into the world. God the Son left the throne of heaven and took upon himself the form of man. The scriptures say he was made like man, flesh and blood, born of a woman, walked among men, serving God the Father, accomplishing marvelously wonderful things and teaching the glory of being his disciple, his follower. And as God the Father sent his Son into the world to be made like man, there he visited his wrath against sin upon his son. The Bible affirms in 2 Corinthians, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now this is, this is a most wonderful, marvelous truth of God's love. And I, I would even understand if, if there would be those here that want to, to stand and shout, glory, hallelujah. For even as we have spoken of the magnitude of God's wrath against sin, we must here acknowledge the magnitude of the suffering of the Son of God. We must acknowledge the magnitude of the suffering of Jesus Christ, whom Scripture tells us was beaten unmercifully. And while the Son of God, he was yet ridiculed, spat upon, nailed to a tree, there hanging in shame, in agony, bleeding, dying. And these are but the physical torture that he suffered. That we might understand in small measure of what the wrath of God was poured out upon him, nailed to that tree. He who knew no sin was made sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. We, we need not bear the wrath of God against our sin, for Jesus has taken it for us. We must be saved. And God has provided a gift from God He has given to those who would turn to Jesus Christ to be saved. You must be saved, and Jesus will save you. But we certainly need to address the precision of our focal verse today. For as it speaks of Jesus Christ, it tells us there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You do not want to make the same mistake that you made in your original sin in failing to obey, failing to submit to God the Creator, you do not now want to make that same mistake by doubting God's Word. Don't reject the truth of God for the lie of man. And trust me, you are going to be exposed far more often to the lie of man than you are to the truth of God. You can, you can be a hermit or uh, what's the guys that go off and live in the monastery by themselves? A monk. And you're still, you're still going to have to 
listen, you're going to have to hear, you're going to have to be exposed, you're going to have to overcome the temptation to accept and believe the lie of man. And the lie of man, if you don't know, is that we're all going to the same place. We're just going by different paths. Oh, how wonderful. Well, it may be true that everybody's going to the same place, but they're going by the same path. And that is in the failure to submit and obey to the Creator God. So certainly, if we are to accept God's Word, if we are to believe God's Word, or, or if we are to put into effect God's Word. We recognize that we must be saved. We understand that we are desperate in this situation. But even as we recognize our desperation, let us be sure that we know that even as we must be saved, that it is God's will that we would be saved. Now, Jesus told this, this little, uh, little illustration we have in Mark chapter 10. He, he said, uh, is it coming up? All right, good stuff. Thank you, Abby. Um, Jesus said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they were astonished out of measure, saying amongst themselves, Who then can be saved? And Jesus, looking upon them, said, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. We are truly confronted with an impossibility. We cannot save ourselves. There is no provision in any of God's Word that we might be saved from the wrath of God by being extra good. No possibility of salvation by the practice of any religion. There is no amount of money, no reign of worldly power, no ascendance before the glory of man that can save us. How much more, how much greater is the insult to propose numbers of other avenues of salvation? What an affront it is to the Son of God what an affront it is to God Himself that He has established in Himself, by Himself, and to Himself the way of salvation in His Son, Jesus Christ. Can hell be any hotter for those who dismiss God's loving kindness to pursue a course of their own making? There is salvation in no one else. Who 
but God can save us. Who can contend with God? Who can divert the wrath of God? The wrath of God ordained by the will of God, directed from its justly intended recipient. Did you listen to Job this morning as as Pastor Ben read? What a marvelously wonderful text. God says to Job, can you do the things I can do? Can, is, is your hand strong like mine? Can you speak and what you have spoken is certain to take place? Can you be God? Do any of this, Job, and I'll welcome you alongside. Job had already said, I ain't saying nothing. It's a good time to keep your mouth shut, I would say. The Lord directed Job to recognize that he could never raise himself to the stature of God. There is no power, no authority, No force that can counteract the hand of God. As the Apostle Paul was to write, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? So we must ask, we must be saved. Can any but God himself save us from the wrath of God? As it it is God's wrath from which we hope to be saved, it is only by God's grace that we can be saved. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Very precise, very direct, very exclusive. And fellow Christians, brothers and sisters, I encourage you to make no apology for the exclusivity of your faith. There is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. That's God's word. That's not your word. That's not your standard. That's not your measure. That's what God has said. And as you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, let us speak with assurance of the truth of God's Word so that we might cry out with the Apostle Paul, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So as we have spoken of the magnitude of the sacrifice, we must acknowledge the depths of the problem. Consider that the conversion of sinners into saints demands extraordinary means. The will of God. The will of God determined that through the sacrifice of His Son, 
he would reconcile to himself a people. No mean feat. Considering the depth of the depravity of man. It's no small thing that he has accomplished by the sacrifice of the Son of God. In the salvation of sinners, God has done a great thing. A marvelously wonderful thing, sending Jesus to be our Savior. And so with the scriptures we say, repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. Grant to God the honor that is due Him. Let go of your own pride, your own individualism. Praise God for giving His Son. Do what is right. And you may surely trust God will do what is right. Let us pray. Gracious Father, how we praise you and give you thanks for your word, for the truth and power of your word. We thank you, Father, that in Jesus Christ we have a Savior. We pray, O Lord, that according to your word and according to your will, that you would grant to each one who looks to you in faith, O God, this day, that measure of your Holy Spirit, that we might turn from sin and self, and we might be a people pleasing to you, who serve you, and ever bring praise, honor, and glory to that most precious and holy name of Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.